Hello, everyone. This is Food Talk's executive producer, Rob Perra. On today's episode, Danny talks with Baldemar Velasquez, an internationally recognized leader in the farm worker and immigrants' rights movement. Founder and president of the Farm Labor Organizing Committee, he joins the podcast to discuss labor unions, farm workers' rights, and advocating for change. Enjoy the show. Before I introduce uh, President Baltimore Velasquez of the Farm Labor Organizing Committee, I, I want to talk a little bit, um, as I did yesterday, about really the importance of both the labor and food movements. And I think COVID-19 and what we've been seeing with the uprisings and the, the, the demonstrations for uh, fighting inequality and racism in this country, there's a real opportunity to make sure that we use uh, our, our ability to organize and our, our, our ability for collective action to build greater movements, to build greater social movements uh, that will help, uh, you know, in return, build lasting political change. And I think one of the ways that we can do that as eaters is to support the work of, of unions uh, like Flock, the Farm Labor Organizing Committee, and UFCW, and others who are really working to protect food and farm workers every day, whether they're in restaurants or uh, at grocery stores or in fields. And, and that's why, you know, this idea of bringing consumers together uh, uh, to, to mobilize for change, I think it is very, very important. And so we can all contribute to that. Um, again, I'm really honored that President Baldemar Velasquez uh, could join us today. He's an internationally recognized leader in the farm worker and immigrant rights movement. He founded the Farm Labor Organizing Committee in 1967 and has since made labor history as the first union to negotiate tri-party contracts and to represent H-2A guest workers in a labor agreement, um, which has led to recognition by many labor, government, academic, and and progressive organizations. Uh, President Velasquez has a really interesting background. He grew up in a migrant farm uh, worker family based in the Rio Grande of, uh, of Texas. Every year, his family would migrate to the Midwest and other regions to work in the fields, planting, weeding, and harvesting crops like pickles, tomatoes, sugar beets, and berries. They traveled in trucks and old cars and often lived in barns and converted chicken coops. And eventually, he uh, and his family settled in Ohio, um, where he continued to work in the fields during high school, and he became the first member of his family to graduate from college. Uh, he, he's been, you know, fighting for farm workers ever since, uh, and again, started Flock in the 1960s, and under his leadership, it has set international precedence in labor history. He is the recipient of the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Fellowship, uh, which is also known as the Genius Grant, and many, many other awards and accolades. And in 2009, he was elected to uh, the AFL-CIO Executive Council. That's the American Federation of Labor Movements in the United States. Um, one of the very best moments of my life uh, was when I met Valdemore. He, uh, it was on my birthday. I'm not going to tell you how old I turned that year, but he uh, very graciously uh, took me and our co-founder, uh, Bernie Pollock, out to dinner and told us all of the stories of the amazing uh, labor movement that he's involved in, fighting for farm workers. And it truly, he's, he's someone very special and who is, is a real hero. So, Baltimore, thank you so much for being here today. It's so nice to see you. Danny, it's my pleasure. 
so there's a lot going on, right? There's a lot going on in, in the, uh, in the food sector with COVID-19. I think in so many ways, people have opened their eyes, uh, for the first time to what farm workers and food workers face. And I'm wondering if you can give us a sense of, of, you know, how your farm, the farm workers that you represent uh, with the Farm Labor, Labor Organizing Committee are sort of getting through this time with COVID-19. Crops still have to be harvested. People still have to be out in the fields. What's that like right now? Well, it's very challenging. Fortunately for us, we, we were uh, uh, proactive in this when uh, the call was made on the, uh, on the uh, uh, safety in place policies and uh, social distancing. We issued um, uh, protocols to our membership uh, right towards the uh, latter part of March. Uh, much of that messaging went to Mexico before the H2A workers started coming up. So we were already corresponding and training workers about the uh, safety protocols uh, before they even left their homes uh, in Mexico. Uh, Same thing when they started to arrive uh, in the United States um, in late March and um, uh, April. Uh, we had to make a decision how we're going to handle this because uh, most um, uh, advocacy groups and migrant clinics, you know, everybody was uh, staying out of the labor camps. So we, right. as our workers began to arrive, we, we had to respond. Uh, when they arrived, you know, uh, even the, the farmers, the employers couldn't find um, uh, cleaning uh, equipment and right. supplies. Uh, they were all hoarded by the local uh, population. So uh, we made a call out to um, uh, in March uh, to um, uh, collect uh, donated uh, uh, Clorox, um, uh, gloves, uh, face masks. And we even have a group of immigrant women uh, that my daughter, uh, through a friend, got connected with, and they formed a, a group to uh, make 600 face masks for us in, in two days wow. so that we could take them down to North Carolina. So um, it, like everybody else, we're, we're trying to preempt uh, things as best we can. We knew the workers were going to need a lot of protection in those labor camps. There can be hot spots for the spreading the virus because of the sure. cramped living and working conditions. And um, so uh, as, as they arrived, okay. we had teams of uh, organizers voluntarily. I mean, I said, I'm going to make this voluntary and, and I'm going to go out first. And uh, uh, wow. I, if people want to join me it's, uh, voluntarily, that's fine. And people did. And we, of course, we, we, we wore face masks and gloves and uh, uh, changed gloves when we handled things and um, uh, did everything we can to uh, get the supplies out to the workers. And we continue to do that. Uh, we've, we've distributed thousands of um, face masks to workers and, you know, we cover, our, our union agreements cover uh, close to 700 farms stretching from North Carolina, uh, I think some in Virginia, Tennessee, and uh, Ohio and, and Michigan. So um, uh, Kentucky as well. So we're we're we have to do it. What other people are doing to try to protect the uh, uh, yeah. the workers. 
you know, Baltimore, I, I, I know how much Flock does, and you're doing it at a really critical time, and it's you're showing so much courage, and, and your your members are showing so much courage. Why wouldn't the farms, the, the, the owners of these operations, be providing the protective equipment? Isn't that part of their responsibility, not just to the workers themselves, but to all of us to keep the food supply safe? Well, to tell you the truth, the, the farms that we know, that we work with, have done, uh, I think, very, very well in doing that. It's okay. just sometimes they don't have enough uh, uh, of them available to get. And that's why we're sort of adding to the mm-hmm. whatever they can do. We try to fill in gaps and that's try great. to be helpful in that regard. Because when it comes to this job, I mean, think about it. Um, it's kind of it's, it's a little bit different uh, because um, crops uh, can't be stored. Uh, right. These are very um, uh, perishable. They have yeah. they're perishable. They have to be harvested, and so uh, when they, you got an employer who's got that huge investment in the ground, I mean, he had to take out bank loans and things like that to get the crop in the ground, sure. and his payment to his bank loans is sitting out there in the field, so. It's to his financial uh, advantage not to have his workers sick, not to have his workers sure. quarantined, not to have his workers uh, not be healthy enough to do the work. So he's going to do everything possible. Uh, so that worked in our favor uh, because we were able to get good cooperation from the ones that, uh, that we're in contact with. The ones, the workers we're concerned about are the independent farm labor contractors that bring crews in, whether they're, they can be H2A independent contractors. They can be undocumented uh, workers in his crews. uh, They can be domestic workers. And those are the guys that we worry about because many times that's where all the abuses uh, occur. And we're trying to correct that uh, in terms of our organizing strategies to get them uh, either out of business or uh, conform to some kind of, uh, a uh, way in right. which give the workers uh, justice and not steal their wages and other things. So Absolutely. those are the ones we're worried about. But because so, also they're going to work alongside maybe in some fields with our union members. And and if they don't contain right. the virus, take care, it's going to affect our people. So there is a real difference, and this is what I want our, our listeners to, to, you know, I want you to help them understand this. There's a real difference between farm workers who belong to a union and, and farm workers who, who don't. There's a real difference in terms of protections. There's a real difference in, in, in terms of how that you're able to. Uh, I was going to say in 2019, for instance, I was going to give an example of the difference. <clears throat> um, through our collective bargaining uh, procedures, uh, we resolved uh, cases uh, on, on wage issues um, uh, amounting to uh, over $800,000. Uh, now, if they were non-union, that money would have been lost in the worker's pocket, uh, whether it was intentional or unintentional or whatever. Uh, I'm not going to cast judgment without knowing particulars. But I'm telling you that if this is what we recouped for workers in the union setting, imagine in the non-union setting. I haven't heard right. workers being able to get their wages. They come to us all the time. I got cheated here. I got cheated there. We get calls all the time from Mexico. This recruiter took all this money from us. We hit the border. They shook us down for more money. And so when workers don't have representation in the supply chain, 
our union contract uh, covers workers even while they're in Mexico uh, nice. because of the recruiters that work for the North American employers. We can set, um, we can raise concerns, grievances. Our workers have a right to file grievances in Mexico over recruiting violations. Amazing. Uh, non-union H-2A workers cannot do that. So um, we've, we've uh, pretty much um, nailed down where all the abuses start, and a lot of them start at the, at the recruiting uh, side uh, with extorting extra money from workers because they want to work, work, come work legally with a visa, and they have the option of doing, uh, paying a bribe for that visa or uh, uh, paying a, a, a smuggler to smug, smuggle you across the border and pay five, ten times more. And so those are the issues that uh, uh, that we have to deal with in this uh, binational situation. Absolutely, absolutely. And those kinds of things become even more important as 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 we struggle to to face this pandemic you want to protect workers so that they get you know they're 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 working during a very dangerous time and you want to make sure that they're being paid well and 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 getting all the resources they need i'm wondering if you can also describe you know i've asked you this before when i've interviewed you on stage at one of our food tank summits but if you can describe maybe sort of a day in the life of a farm worker um, and, and sort of what it entails, because I, I think people don't really get how, what kind of work this is. You, you yourself have done it. You know, it's, it's arduous work. Uh, yeah, um, I can describe um, uh, my little stint. Um, I did a, a six-day work week um, some eight, nine years ago in the tobacco because uh, I've harvested everything you can think of, row crops, bush crops, tree crops, uh, but I had never harvested anything like tobacco. I moved into a migrant labor camp and uh, did a six-day work week and um, slept in the migrant camp with uh, uh, a dozen other workers. Uh, We would get up at 5 o'clock in the morning, uh, try to make some breakfast, and uh, we're in a common kitchen, uh, you know, they were pretty coordinated, not falling over each other. And, uh, uh, 12, 13 of us, uh, trying to get a breakfast ready, uh, get in the van, uh, go to the, uh, uh, shed to get the, the water barrels, uh, out to the field, mm-hmm. uh, and be out in the field by no later than seven. And, uh, we're topping and suckering, uh, tobacco, um, by nine o'clock, it's already over 80 degrees. Uh, nine thirty, yeah. ten o'clock, it's 90 degrees. And you, uh, you work with a, with a, uh, plastic, uh, a trash bag, uh, with arms, uh, holes cut for the arms and your head, uh, to use as a poncho to shield mm-hmm. you from the moisture of the leaf, from the dew or rainwater if it rained the night before, mm-hmm. because the, the moisture has uh, uh, nicotine in it, and you ingest it through your skin, and you want to protect yourself from getting uh, 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 the yellow uh, monster, the uh, to- uh, tobacco poisoning uh, right. in, your, in your body. And uh, uh, and so so by 9.30, and I remember my first day, the tobacco rolls are really long. And um, uh, before I got to the other end, which took about an hour, mm-hmm. uh, hour and a half, uh, I was sweltering. I could hardly breathe in that uh, plastic bag. Uh, 
Right. Uh, when I got to the other end and I saw the opening where the other workers uh, were there, they had already taken off their ponchos midway through the through the field, and wow. they said, "You didn't tell me you I could do that." Right. <laughs> the moisture and the leaves dried enough so that they, they can just a minimum amount of it. Uh, okay. And then if it gets around noon or one o'clock in the afternoon, the sun is blistering hot, and there's no shade out there, uh, and literally. I had to switch sides of the road to work on because the sun on your back was like a, like a flamethrower on your back. Uh, it was that hot. And most of all, at the edge of the fields where the deer come out of the woods and eat the bottom of the, the tobacco plants, uh, it oozes out the, the juice, and you have these gnats. I mean, wow. uh, uh, when you breathe, you breathe in the gnats through your nose. Uh, so I had to learn to put a bandana uh, over my nose, and that made you even more claustrophobic uh, in the heat. And you had to have your your shirt up up to your uh, neck and buttoned up and long sleeve shirt uh, to minimize the ingestion of the nicotine uh, on the leaves. They say uh, a researcher at Wake State University, Wake Wake Forest, indicates that a worker who handles tobacco leaves for a day. Uh, and just uh, uh, um, the equivalent nicotine in their body of smoking uh, 23 cigarettes. Wow, that's incredible. So you're fighting green tobacco sickness, you're fighting the heat, uh, and um, the ergonomics of it, by the second day, my hands were so swollen from the topping and the suckering, especially the topping because some of the stems are pretty thick up there, so you have to Mm -hmm. twist like that. Uh, my hands were so swollen that I couldn't close my fist. And um, and I, I asked the other workers, is this what happens all the time? He said, oh, yeah, it'll go away sooner or later. Wow. <laughs> so wow. we had to put up with a lot of things that most people are not really aware of. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's why, I mean, to some extent, there are lots of H-2A workers because these are jobs that, you know, a, a lot of Americans don't want to do because it, it is very labor intensive. It is very hard. You're out in the heat. And, and I, 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 I want folks maybe from you to understand, but also for me, it's really immigrants who, who feed America in so many ways. People who come to this country, migrants who come to this country, uh, you know, to, to in search of a better life for sure, but also in search of jobs. And, and we depend on these folks and, and their safety, you know, makes us all safer. Well, I think anything that proves uh, the necessity of these workers uh, who've done agriculture or know how to do agricultural work, that right now with all the unemployment, you'd think that there'd be plenty of people around to do these jobs. Right. Uh, but obviously, uh, it's not going to work for most Americans. Right. Right. You know, you, you brought up, you know, uh, sort of the intensity of, of picking tobacco. And, you know, one of the things that so many food organizations, food and agriculture organizations like Food Tank works on is, you know, obviously COVID is, is sort of taking up all, all of uh, the oxygen um, among groups right now. But, you know, there are still issues that we've been working on for a long time and, and trying to figure out. And, and one of them is climate change. And, and I know because of of, of the changes that we've seen in, in weather patterns, that that has that also takes a real toll, not just on farmers but farm workers. Have, have you encountered that kind of you know farm workers telling you that you know uh, that you know how, how they're affected by climate change and and some of the changes they've seen? 
that hasn't, you know, we've sort of discussed it around the edges of other issues uh, and how we're being impacted, uh, particularly uh, the workers that are coming from Central America that work in the rural areas uh, where our members work. Um, a lot of their uh, farms that they uh, fleed from in, in uh, Guatemala, for instance, especially in the mountains where the climate has changed to the point they can't grow their crops anymore. That's wow. uh, the the climate has changed and shifted so much that they're not the regular uh, planting and harvesting patterns that they were used to in the past. We've heard uh, some of those stories, but I, I tell you that uh, all these debates, where there's climate change, uh, whether it's farm worker poverty, um, whether it's um, this pandemic, and who's suffering the most is blacks and Latinos. And poor Absolutely. people, um, because it all has to do with the global um, economic systems that we're a part of, and uh, and it's driven by these um, um, inequitable uh, trade agreements that we negotiate all the time. Uh, those are investors. These are those aren't worker people's agreements. Those are investors' agreement. And uh, if 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 the economy is driven uh, by investors. Uh, with no uh, uh, safety nets uh, in the, any kind of the negotiations, we're all going to suffer. And a lot of it is based on this issue of racism that we're dealing with today. Absolutely. Uh, and this all this uh, the, all the inequity that's going on. This is a global uh, uh, issue. It is not just a national issue for us, uh, because a lot of the employers that we work for are global corporations mm-hmm. that control. Uh, even the smaller companies that work in America supply larger corporations. So uh, we've learned and realized that very quickly on when we started our first campaign with Campbell Soup. That's why we pioneered these, um, you call them three, uh, three-way three agreements. So we call them supply chain agreements uh, that we know mm-hmm. are the, the, the corporate top that drives agriculture. Uh, and the small, and, and this is a, another narrative we have to change in, the, in America. Uh, the, the issue of the small family farmer, and especially if we grow labor intensive crops that hire our people, that we have to uh, really change that narrative because a lot of those farms are suppliers uh, to major corporations, and they're as much victimized by that supply chain inequity as we are. As a matter Absolutely. of fact, that's what drives a lot of growers to cut corners and marginalize farm workers because that's the only way they can uh, create the cushion to survive, uh, to have a if if not a if if not a profit margin, uh, certainly something to keep its farm viable. So we have to change that narrative. This, we we need a we need a, a a campaign of small family farmers and farm workers together fighting the big corporate retailers and, and uh, manufacturers that oppress us all, not only here in the United States, but globally. Absolutely. I love that. That's such a great call to action. And and you're right. I think, you know, farmers and, and farm workers have a sort of, uh, been at odds at times because you farmers, you know, they're both trying to just survive. But I, I think you're right that working together and having that that collective action moving forward is 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 you know it's revolutionary. It's not just changing the narrative. It will it will be a, sort of a revolution in how food is is produced, not just in this country, but but all over the world. I also wanted to ask you. 
that you know you I, I know I've heard you say in the past that that boycotts always work and if we're talking about you know some of these global corporations that oppress both farmers and farm workers and black and indigenous and people of color uh, why are our boycotts effective at, at sort of fighting that inequality and making change because it involves it, it brings into into the struggle the the roles of the consumers in America uh, we're, we're, we're the food people. Uh, we, we do the, the lowliest job uh, there is to do. The, we, the planting, the cultivating, the harvesting uh, that creates the raw product for either processing or for fresh market. And so um, uh, if we don't have consumers as partners, uh, then we lose a huge leverage in trying to uh, change the practices uh, in the supply chains and uh, bring these corporations to some kind of measure of, uh, of accommodating uh, people that, uh, that really help them, really the ones that are responsible for making their wealth. Uh, and so, um, and I think that Americans, uh, no, no matter the issues that we're fighting today on these race wars and everything, I think the majority of American people are honest and fair-minded people. And we've proven it time and time again uh, through the boycotts that we've done with, with Campbell Soup. Uh, we didn't have to boycott Heinz, uh, Dean Foods, uh, Monola Pickle. We did boycott them for six years uh, before we got the supply chain agreement with them. Uh, but it's all in part because of the consumers, uh, whether it's through networking them through their churches or through the uh, advocacy groups, uh, social justice groups, other unions, uh, they work. Uh, because uh, most corporations, if you look at their expense uh, pie charts, uh, you find the, 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 the major chunk of their spending is on, is on marketing and uh, uh, commercializing the name. Uh, you you got to uh, build the, the brand name. And uh, when you raise a doubt in the consumer's mind about the brand, you're, you're negating millions of uh, advertising dollars. And so we may not have money, but we got activists and people giving that give their time. That's uh, worth more than the money. And so on that point, what advice do you have for consumers? How can they become sort of more involved, especially now as we're sort of uh, so many of us are sequestered at home. We might be buying things online um, and and purchasing through, you know, uh, food delivery services. What are the best ways for consumers to really educate themselves and create awareness? Well, I have to, I have to, have to say that um, people have to learn to pick their fights. Um, I think that there's a lot of uh, groups. Uh, somebody gets all riled up about this issue and that issue, so they start an online campaign. Oh, we need to you know, challenge this, challenge that. But the most important issues you can support in terms of boycotts and things like that is when there's a group of workers actually demanding uh, right. something. Because if this doesn't end in a collective, uh, instit- collectivizing, creating institution among the working poor, uh, you can do this boycott, but when it's over, you know, it's, it's over. Uh, there's nothing permanent there to drive and grow the justice fight that needs to happen on the ground. And uh, the more marginalized the people are as poor, I don't care if you're, you know, black, white, brown, red, or yellow, if you're oppressed, and, and you're being exploited, you need to organize and create a, uh, a collective voice 
uh, find your collective voice, institutionalize it so you can keep on fighting uh, it on the ground and create what I call the um, uh, constructive tensions in life, in an industry, in a supply chain. Absolutely. That's really good advice. And, and you're right, you know, supporting workers who are already fighting against these things, giving them the support they need to continue to continue campaigning, to continue creating that awareness is really important. You know, I, while awareness is important, and that's something that Food Tank tries to do, you know, we also need legislation. We need policies that support farm workers, that protect them. What are, are some of the, the best uh, pieces of legislation or policy actions that, that you think will really help farm workers you know, now during this, this pandemic crisis, but well into the future? The best legal uh, standards that we, uh, that we would love and desire uh, in terms of the public policy is uh, give us a right to form unions. Give us the right uh, to uh, eliminate the, the the roadblocks to unionizing farm workers. Uh, I I'd, I'd give the agriculture industry anything they wanted if they gave us that, because that gives <laughs> that gives us a chance to fight. Uh, and uh, I I'm not a big fan of these uh, uh, low hanging fruit victories. Sure. Uh, uh, I want the workers to be self-determined. I don't want to have to rely on advocates forever to help farm workers. Uh, I don't want the uh, workers, uh, I don't want farm workers to be treated like uh, welfare uh, clients. Right. We're, we're not. All of the money that's given to uh, uh, agencies to service farm workers, I don't care whether they're health clinics or uh, emergency food, emergency that, We've seen that since uh, Lyndon Johnson's war on poverty in the 60s. It hasn't changed anything because it never challenged the inequities in the supply chains that I'm talking about. It has to do with the money and who pays how much for what. And they, well, we want to marginalize people on the bottom, the less powerful and the less marginalized. And this is – let me add this, Danny, before we run out of time, that all this is based on a historical uh, uh, trajectory in our country – that uh, was founded on the racist policies uh, that this country has had forever. Uh, whether, you know, founded in agriculture with slavery uh, in the South, uh, we've replaced the, the black slaves. We're the new slaves, as some of the farmers call us. Um, and uh, it, it was very clearly uh, pronounced in 1935 when they passed the National Labor Relations Act. Um, they excluded agriculture workers from that, right? Uh, yeah, because Roosevelt needed the Dixiecrats, the the uh, Southern Democrats, to vote for that. And the only way they could see that black people, they could not see that black people would have equal rights with white people. So they excluded the agriculture workers from the right of form unions, and most of the agriculture workers were black in those days. And we've inherited that racist policy to this day. So we had the right to organize and eliminate the right-to-work laws and all the, the impediments to organizing. Farm workers can speak for themselves. We don't want charity. We want a fair day's pay for a fair day of work. 
Well said. So eloquent, Voldemort. I mean, I think that that, you know, the, the systemic racism that's been going on in this country, the, the massive inequality that, you know, just like COVID exposed so many fractures in the food system and so many, you know, cracks, I think we're now sort of everyone's eyes have been open to, to that systemic racism. And I, I think what makes this, you know, the, what Black Lives Matter and the movement toward uh, equality in this country is really showing is that we can't have short-lived, you know, it's not just one march or one demonstration. We have to have real long-lasting sort of uh, uprising and revolution to, to really make things happen. Um, and I think that's what you've been doing with the Farm Labor Organizing Committee, just, you know, continuously since the 1960s, making sure that the, the, the voices of farm workers are heard and that they're listened to. And I, I think we're at a really critical moment in history when, when change, actual real change could make, take place. Yes. And I point out that, um, uh, like, as this pandemic uh, indicates and shows, that um, Latinos and blacks being the most vulnerable uh, because on the uh, economic side, um, there's more of us in, in, in lower wage um, uh, in incomes than the rest of the population. And that has to do with our, our, our history of life and has to do with the kind of jobs we're able to get. They're the lower paid jobs. They're certainly not uh, middle class, upper class uh, paying jobs. Uh, many of us, uh, and so when you have less income, you have less access to health care. You, you, you can't buy as much as other people mm -hmm. can, and so mm -hmm. uh, we're, it's obvious we're going we're gonna to suffer. But I tell people that if you let us organize, responding to this pandemic would be easier because then you're dealing with an organized group of people. Uh, and if the right, farmers right. didn't have flock uh, in the south uh, – they wouldn't have had anyone to go out and deliver all the supplies and face masks that we did. I, I can recall uh, right. a few years ago when there was a big hurricane in North Carolina, even the Red Cross didn't know where the labor camps were. They had to come to us uh, and to show them where the labor camps uh, were uh, to help the workers that were stranded in the, in the hurricanes. Uh, and so um, uh, that's because we're, we have an organization. So if people are organized, you can deal with issues a lot easier than if they're not organized. Absolutely, absolutely. And and I also, before we end and before I ask the final question, I think you made such an important point about, you know, it, it, you don't want to have to rely on advocacy organizations forever to, to create awareness about this work. It, you, you need better allies. And I think that's one of the things I'm struggling with. Um, as as we sort of you know think about how to to create a more equitable food system, how how do advocacy organizations and research organizations like Food Tank and so many others be, you know become better allies to farm workers? And you know I I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. Uh, there's a spectrum. I mean we 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 take anybody's help, whether it's <laughs> a, a little a small or or big. Um, but I want to uh, tell you a story that, um, uh, that, uh, I spent a lot of time with Cesar Chavez, um, riding in cars, traveling together in Mexico and Texas, California, and here in the Midwest, um, he spoke at three of our conventions, um, uh, before he passed away. Sure. And, um, and, uh, he, um, he was telling this story about when he started organizing, 
And the uh, the California Migrant Ministry, Chris Hartmeyer, came to him and said, uh, Caesar, what can we do to help? Uh, Caesar turned around and, and told him, uh, give me all your staff and all your credit cards and <laughs> and uh, help me organize the farm workers. <laughs> so that's the extreme. Uh, so, you know, the, organizing farm workers is not a job for every, anyone, for everyone. Uh, we have a handful of people that are willing to work night and day, uh, be on call seven days a week when the workers are here. And um, uh, that's not uh, somebody's idea of a, of a, a, a nine-to-five job and five days a week. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's unmerciful on your, on your life and on your scheduling. So we're always looking for uh, those uh, people that got that kind of fire in their belly right. to want to come do this work. So if you know any of them, send them our way. Or if you want to organize farm workers in New York or somewhere else and you got uh, somebody hot to trot, Send them to me. We'll train them and send them there. We'll work with them to organize farm workers there. I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of emails asking me to introduce folk, uh, asking me to introduce you to them. So I will. I will send any any of those folks your way. My my last question, Baltimore, is that who who is inspiring you the most right now? You you work with so many amazing people. You've seen so many uh, uh, amazing things happen. You you know you worked with Cesar Chavez. Who is inspiring you the most right now? Well, to tell you the truth, and this this might sound like a cornball answer, but um, um, I think I, when I read scripture uh, and I see the examples that Jesus did, uh, he went out of his way uh, to confront people, to uh, lecture people, to encourage people, to heal people. Um, uh, I, I go back and, and, and read those parables and read those uh, stories from his words. Those are things that ended up being the most inspiring to me in the long run, because who would go out of his way to do the most inconvenient thing in the world for the rest of us? Um, can you imagine? Uh, I have one son and three daughters. OK, I can't conceive of someone loving someone else so much that he sends his only son and sacrifice him for everybody else. If you, th- you said, I'm going to sacrifice my son for you or anyone else. Uh, I can't conceive of that. And so when I, when I think about that, uh, I think of, wow, if, if, um, if this, I want to be like that. Uh, I, I want, that's what I want to be. And uh, the, the, when I first met Martin Luther King Jr., and, and uh, Cesar Chavez and uh, some of those early civil rights fighters, um, uh, they, to me, mirrored that. They mirrored that to me. Uh, when I first saw uh, Dr. King in a meeting in, in Atlanta planning the Poor People's Campaign, there were 30 of us, Latino and Indian leaders. And when he came in uh, and during in that fight, uh, the war against po- or the, uh, the Poor People's Campaign, I looked at him and said, I want to be like those guys. So those are the kind of things that inspire me. Those who go out of their way to put their lives on the line for others, those are the folks that have inspired me. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. What a, what a wonderful way to end the podcast. I want to make sure people know how to get in touch with the Farm Labor Organizing Committee. They can go to flock.com. That's F-L-O-C.com, F-L-O-C.com. Um, and you can find out more about Baltimore. Baltimore, you inspire me. It's, it's always an, uh, an honor uh, to see you. And I, I'm truly glad I know you. Thank you for all your work. Thank you for joining me today. A reminder that this episode will also appear on our podcast, Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg. And please join me on our ne- next episode when I'll be talking to Jack uh, Kinninger from the uh, Conservation International. Thanks again, Baltimore. Please stay well. Thank you, Danny, and keep up the good work. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg. Please rate, review, subscribe, and share the podcast. Make sure to return to foodtank.com every day for original reporting and analysis on the most pressing issues impacting our food system.